Hello, I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. Before we get down to the nitty gritty of the show, I want to make sure that all of our listeners are following us on Facebook and Twitter, giving us uh, a little likey-like on the old iTunes box, if that's what you're listening to us uh, through. It definitely helps people find the show if you do that. Um, we're just... Uh, we're just getting silly with it. I mean, Quentin, Quentin puts up some great posts on Facebook. I don't do so as much, but that's probably good because <laughs> this stuff you put up is pretty good. I mean, like, that's the thing. Like, I sit there and I'm just like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be posting anything better. Like, throw my two cents in every Yeah, now sure, and then. right? There's not, I mean, All we need is a little bit. You can't keep it until, frankly, unless we have more people. We only have so many people. You get a few likes every once in a while. It's amusing. You might be able to touch somebody with with an interesting factoid and or a bike that they've never seen or a video that's interesting or something like that. Let's put it this way. Here's the value proposition, right? Everyone needs a little bit more motorcycling in their Facebook feed. Sure. Between all the viral media stuff, all the politics stuff that's going on, all the crazy share this photo if you agree nonsense. I think, I think the world would be a better place if more people liked our Facebook page because it would put just good, wholesome, two-wheeled fun in their daily feed. There might be an F-bomb in there every once in a while. Around then. Around then. <laughs> uh, I apologize. <laughs> My mother didn't raise me right. <laughs> but she certainly clicks on every single two of these podcasts. Oh, man. Uh, video and or share or whatever and says like. Bonnie Beeler, two enthusiast fan number one. <laughs> what a sweet lady. I uh, just got a call from her. Her iPad is on the fritz, so I don't know if Uh-oh. we might be have like a dearth of, of Bonnie Beeler likes for Uh-oh. the next week or so. I would I would say if 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 you do follow us on Facebook, give my mom a friend request because I think she get a kick out of it. Hmm. Should I do that? Because I'm oh I for sure. You're not friends with my mom on Facebook. I don't think so. That's just rude. Oh, sorry. She's I don't your know. number one fan. I don't know, man. I feel uncomfortable about uh, friending anybody that I don't know. Like face to face. Well, that, that's my thing. Like I, I have to like broken bread with someone before I'll be Facebook friends with them. I, I'm not that steadfast. I know I have a bunch of industry contacts that I've never met face to face or I only know kind of tangentially through other people and, I, and I'll get into it. But man, there's a lot of, especially once we started this podcast, there's been a bunch of cold like friend things and yeah, I, I don't yeah. know how to deal with that because it's like, mm, this is still, even though you're out there, it's still kind of personal space. They're going to see me you know, they're going to see me as me different than what we are in this podcast. Well, not that much different, but you know what I mean? It's one thing if we're talking about motorcycles. It's another thing if all of a sudden you see a feel the burn post, right? Sure. Right. Or all the it's fucking kitty cats. Well, people mm. know that I like kitty cats, but like you then really would have to know that you, that I like kitty cats all of a sudden. Right. And, and Quentin says he likes kitty cats. He literally means like little kittens, <laughs> little Siamese, what, what's, what's Mancoon, the Mancoon. tabbies. We like, we, we like them all dead serious right see i get i get a lot of those those random likers too and and they just end up in facebook purgatory and it's nothing personal it's just i don't know you we're not friends we're not friends i, I, I want to be friends i would love to be become friends sure but we're not friends we're not there yet it's too right. soon i don't want to give you any hugs i'm not a hugger that's a whole different thing we should probably get to the show yep absolutely enough of this let's get to the show because this is I wouldn't say it's like a special show, but we've been talking about... <laughs> it is special. It, it's a show that, that you and I, Quentin, have been talking about, and, and the news is finally topical enough that I think we can make it relevant to current affairs, but also that I think this is this is just kind of like 
a general interest show in the sense that like what we want to talk about is Eric Buell racing and the Buell motorcycle story and the Eric Buell story, which is also partly the Harley Davidson story. And now kind of the liquid asset partners story and American Superbikes, American sport bike story. It's, it's, it's a lot of stories kind of all in one. And it's going to, it's, there's almost no way to get through it in the hour to hour and a half that we, that we would like to distilled. But we're going to try because it, you know, well, unfortunately we've tried multiple times and we've had a scuttle each show because it ends up going off on random tangents worse than our (laughs) normal. Which should say something. That should should be like a red flag to anyone that's been listening for more than like two shows. And there's never been, and because we've caught into this purgatory and we will probably uh, indefinitely uh, of of the Buell uh, problems, it's just constant problems. There's never really any end where we can say, well, this is what's going down and this is why it's bad. This is why it's good. And here's that. Now it's it, but we're starting to realize that we're going to have to do something. We're going to have to say something about it now and maybe revisit it in another year when it's failed and rebirthed again or, or not failed and, and thriving or whatever it's going to happen. Okay. So betting, betting money now. So, so obviously the, the story is that Eric Brillo Racing has been acquired by Liquid Asset Partners, which is actually the same company that liquidated Buell for Harley Davidson, like way back in in the you know the day. I guess it wasn't way back; it was it was five or six years yeah, ago. It was right when I started. So that's that's funny how time's fl- uh, flown in that case. But um, so there's an interesting interesting thing of note there that that Liquid Asset Partners is is a part of this again. But they're so what's the bet? Well, I mean, so like, I mean, pick a year out. Do you think like? A year, three year, five years. I don't really know enough about their current involvement to really understand what their goals are. Right. So, so, so maybe that's something we should let's let's talk about that first then. Okay. So, so Liquid Asset Partners (LAP) just to shorten it down uh, was lap the, dogs. <laughs> the lap dog. Uh, LAP was the um, winning bid, as you were, for. Uh, Eric Buell Racing going through the Wisconsin receivership process. They were the only bidder, and um, oh, so the dude from Jersey didn't put bid bidding. So in. yeah, so the dude from Jersey won the bid, but then couldn't get the financing secured to actually because he, he he bid like two million dollars. And this was a couple of months ago. Yeah, and so he actually his bankers or his backers ended up. Um, not following through because assets that he said were a part of the deal turned out to be assets that Hero had bought uh, on their side of the auction because Hero bought all the consulting work that was left over that EBR was doing for Hero. Hero so, is a Indian company. Hero is the Indian company. And, and you know a lot of this story involves Hero because I think Hero unjustly gets blamed for a lot of Eric Buell Racing's failures, which I think is the most unfair thing anyone could say, because in a lot of ways there wouldn't be an EBR, there wouldn't be an Eric Buell Racing program without Hero's involvement. Sure, this company would never have gotten off the starting blocks, you know, five, six, seven years ago if it wasn't for for Hero. So, but that's something we have to come so back we'll, to. We'll We've dive already, into that. We're already down a rabbit hole. So the yeah. the first one is okay. They just got. Uh, so, liquefied? Oh, well, what is the right get, they term? Didn't, they didn't get liquefied, but that's what LAP does for, for a living. They solidified it after being liquefied? Can you say that? Was it like a solid poo as a poo? <laughs> I, you know, I knew we were going to go poo, and I was just trying to like, ah, this is like the Titanic. We're going right for the iceberg. Oh, nuts. Target uh, fixation. <laughs> target, I, we target fixated on the poop joke. 
Um, getting past that. We'll have a bowel movement. Passing it. <laughs> uh, it's too early in the show. Keep drinking your beer, Quentin. I this know, is gonna get it's interesting. So good. Um, so so you know, LAP that that's what they specialize in is basically buying uh, physical assets at you know auction prices, turning them around, flipping them for a profit. That you know they're stating that that is not what their intention is with EBR and and their purchase of the company. And I think depending on who you are and your view on Buell and your view on LAP, um, you can you can take kind of a, a cynical approach with that because every time they come out with a press release and they talk about it, there's always that end part where like, hey, and we're still looking for investors and we would love to get working with people to 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 help us sell these bikes and we're still looking for dealers and you know you can be a part of this this great journey with us too if you want and there's nothing i've seen to date you know and now you know ebr is rolling bikes off the assembly line again they've got a small team that are basically assembling and finishing the bikes that were just kind of sitting there in east troy being waiting to be to be finished when when buell shut down so they're starting to roll those bikes off and they're selling them for like 13 14 grand a pop. three quarters of what they were selling significantly before, cheaper about, yeah and to be fair i think that price is is a fair price it's for what nor- you're that getting. would actually be normal right that's what it should have been that's what it should have been unfortunately that price is a red herring because those those bikes and those parts for those bikes were all bought for pennies on the dollar so lap can't afford to make them sure. 13 14 grand you know two, uh, three quarters or two thirds of now, what the original the existing MSRP. stuff right whereas if they then have to buy all right. of the parts and components and pay the people to put them together et cetera, et cetera, it would go back up to well that's the thing so like the next time they have to buy a batch of frames a batch of engines yeah. a batch of wheels and forks unless they were doing it at tens of thousands which is where the economy of scale would work out which they're not because they can't sell that many they, they can't sell them and they don't have the dealer network for that they don't have and they've stated themselves that they'd only want to do about 500 units a year for right now which is very very boutique i mean that'll be the interesting thing to see because 500 bikes a year really isn't a profitable volume and that's a hard that's a hard sell for for a dealership and that and that's going to be the big challenge for them going forward is is filling out this dealer network because so many Eric Buell Racing dealers got burned and are and you know there was no communication whatsoever when when EBR went belly up. Dealers were probably learning as much about the situation as as the general public was because there was just no communication coming from Eric Buell Racing. So I think you know then a lot of them obviously got stuck with inventory and bikes that they can't sell and some still have bikes they're trying to sell and are practically giving them away or putting them up for auction. Um, so I think there's definitely some animosity from the former dealership network, which is going to be very hard to translate into a new dealership network. And Um, you're not going to get any of the Harley dealerships. I mean, maybe out of the, I don't know how many Harley dealerships there are in the United States, but a lot out of all of those, maybe 10%, maybe 1% of them would say, yeah, I'd like to have EBR just because it would be an American sport, but there'd be some real hardcore fan. But even then I doubt it. Right. It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. I think, um, you know, and we're seeing this right now play out with MV Augusta as well, where you get these kind of brands that, that I feel like they get, they get kind of sucked into like the tar pit. They're like a motorcycle tar pit where, you know, they, they kind of fail, but they have kind of a cult following. So that gets resurrected, but then it fails again. And then, oh, then we'll, 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 we fixed it this time. Now we've got the, the, the right people are involved. And then, you know, the inevitable kind of comes along and they just get in these, these kind of death cycles where they, they get propped up and they fall down again and they get propped up and they fall down again. Did you use the word tarpon? Tarpit. Tarpit. 
Okay. Like La Brea like, Tarpit. Not yep. a, tarpon's a bird. I then no, I didn't know. And I was like, I, I don't know this word you're talking, but I tar, tarpit. Okay. You said it quick enough. I apologize. Now I get it. I got a little Mountain Dew on me. So I'm like, boom, boom, yeah, boom. Yeah, you're, you're a little jazzed up. Okay. Pew, pew, pew. That's good. That's good. We want that. So in a tarpit, very painful, very horrible. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think, I mean, I, I've obviously been, I haven't been bashful at all on us phone rubber about my opinion of Eric Buell racing and Buell motorcycles. And I'm, I'm not a fan. I think it's all snake oil. Um, so are we going to try and work backwards from this point? I think, or we're, do you want to work from the beginnings? No, I'm thinking, I think we're going to Tarantino it. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So, so that, that's what I mean. Like I've, I'm not a big fan of, of the EBR movement. I'm not a big fan. I think if you Google my name, like one of the top things that comes up is like this nasty post on one of the Buell forums where they just lay into me, like everything they hate about me, <laughs> which is great because I just oh, feed off that was, it. It's like feed, oh, right? I just feed off the hate. Oh, it's so good, right? It makes you more powerful, man. But it's it's one of those things like, I, I, I should preface like, I really want to see Eric succeed. I really want to see an American sport bike brand. I really want, you know, someone that is contrarian to the establishment who's going to do something new and exciting what I, what I hate about every American motorcycle brand out there is like job one seems to be like, why should you buy this bike? Cause it's made in America. Yeah. This is an American bike. Real Americans buy this bike. You know, for me as an American, that cheapens the American brand to me. I don't want to buy something because it's American. I want to nope. buy something that's great. That happens to be made in America. I want to buy something because it's the best thing on the market and be proud that the best thing on the market was made in the USA. It was made by Americans. It was designed by Americans. It's it's an American innovation. But when you go the other way around with it, it just cheapens the whole process for me. And that's probably been my biggest pushback to Buell is you know especially with their marketing. And and you look at it now with the resurrection with LAP. The very first bike they rolled off the assembly line, they put a huge American flag uh, paint job on it. Painted uh, beautifully, by the way. It was a gorgeous <laughs> paint job. <laughs> That's right. You're friends with the, the, the painter. <laughs> but I can't stand American flag paint jobs. Like I'm with you. I hate jingoism with a passion. I'm, I love this country. I love everything that it stand for and stood for or what it was about. But over the course of time, we're watching it kind of degrade. And that type of jingoism for me it just just crawls underneath my skin. I hate it so much. You see, I'd be totally cool with it if if someone bought a Buell and they're just like, you know what I want? I want the stars and stripes on this bad boy. And I'd be like, all right, that's your thing. I'm not going to judge anyone's paint job on their bike unless it's just, you know, a brony theme or something like that. Look <laughs> that up. Google bronies. These are grown men that like my little pony. Bronies. Uh. <laughs> Even then, I'd be like, you know what? You're a silly motherfucker. I like you. Yeah, right. There's there's the contrarian right. part of it, right? But <laughs> I, I got I got no problems with someone that's one that wants to put that on the bike. I have tremendous issues with a manufacturer that puts that on like the first bike that rolls off the assembly line after they just came out of a bankruptcy proceeding and did the real American thing. Let's bail this company out and let's buy it for pennies on the dollar. Isn't it more Italian though? Isn't that kind of an Italian thing? I mean, that's the sad part. Right? Okay. Like the Italians have perfected that. Yeah. System. That's what I'm saying. I, I'd say that that really is, a <laughs> but you're right in America, there is something you know, it's kind of a Phoenician thing. It's like rising from the ashes, coming back from adversity, you know, bootstrapping yourself again. You know, everybody wants that story, but we've watched this happen multiple times with well, this. And it's tough. And, and, you know, I'm right there with, like, I got pretty, pretty 
shitty one like Ford and Chevy and Chrysler all needed bailouts. And I, I my levels of shittiness differ with each one of those brands because of the way they handled those the bailouts from the government. And I have a lot more respect yeah. for Ford than I do say Chrysler and sure. Chevy's kind of in the middle. Just because like Ford was like, hey, we just need a we just need a line of credit. We're yeah, good. And hey, we we did the first stopgap. We got it. We we paid it off. We paid done, it off ASAP. Right? Chevy sold their their headquarters, and meanwhile, Chrysler's like, hey, we're a private company. Can't we have some money too? Thanks. We're really no better than the banks. That's a whole nother sure can of worms. But it, it it's the same thing though, where I look at Eric Buell Racing and and the Buell story, where you know it's this idea of like. You know, free market capitalism has spoken and they've rejected this idea. Like, you you know, like the, I love it when the diehard Buell guys show up and they talk about, you know, what a great innovative thinker that Eric Buell is and how, what, what the genius is there. And I kind of go like, well, what, 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 what does he have to show? Like, he's not a good businessman because we've seen that. And I don't think there's any arguments there. Um, you know, he's given up equity in his company and I could, I could dissect the hero deal for you and tell you why that's a horrible idea. But you know, I would just probably refer you to my article on it instead. But like, you just look at like the, the perimeter brake uh, disc system. You look at the underslung exhaust system. You look at the, um, oil and or the fuel and frame, the oil and swing arm ideas. And you kind of just like, why are these good ideas again? You know, like th- those, those aren't genius just, ideas just because they're different, just because something's different doesn't make it better. And a lot of ways too, those ideas, they're not like new idea different. It's not like we're sitting here and I love when people make this comparison of Eric Buell to John Britton. Like it's, that's like they're all on the same level where I look at John Britton, I'm like, no, no, no. This was a guy that was handcrafting carbon fiber wheels before anyone was really doing anything with carbon fiber. This is a guy that was creating his own crazy suspension frame idea like you know he made a motorcycle that on the merits was was different and competitive and if maybe he had more of a financial backing could have been a lot more successful than than it was because you know let's be fair the uh the v1000 it won a couple races of moderate interest yeah no and i would say this this is kind of a difficult thing to talk about for somebody who's such an ardent Britain fan because I sure. love that bike is a pretty critical thing oh, yeah. for my enthusiasm for motorcycles for 20 years. Right? I'm right there with you, but you have to get realistic about uh, it too. You do. You have to look at really what happened with that bike. Was was What was truly new and exciting on that bike? And a lot of it is there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing. There is nothing new under the sun. It's very difficult to make something truly conceptually brand new that <clears throat> the bike, as it was set up, is not much different than a Vincent Black Shadow with the frame bolted to the engine, stressed member with the swing arm bolted to the back of the engine, right? People talk about the, the Ducati Panigale being, oh my gosh, look at this. Well, shoot, Ducati's been doing the same damn thing for 30 years with all of its bikes. It just so happened that this year they did it with a aluminum frame and Britain did it with a carbon frame. What he did was a couple of really interesting things. He got into the composites. And he did a, a properly ducted uh, radiator in the tail. He made a very small frontal area. There's a bunch of things that were awesome. But a lot of it was not, I wouldn't call it regurgitated, but not very little of it was conceptually new. Buell, there's really nothing. I mean, it was almost like he said, all right, I got to take some concepts to set aside, uh, set us aside from the rest just because I have to, because that's the only way I can keep sh- at the sharp end. So let's look at this uh, perimeter break. I like that perimeter break. Let me do some calcs and see if that actually works out to be better uh, from a gyroscopic effect to have one 
brake that's on the perimeter of a wheel and then forget about practical use of it just just having to have that right, right. so 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 I, I like that you brought up the perimeter bricks let's talk about that for a second because that is i think if you had to pick like one defining feature that people would attribute to eric buell it's it's the perimeter brake and if you go back in time and you look at it like this is a system not not even just like the single disc brake system that's been around since like the dawn of time that's how that's how motorcycles started like the two disc setup was was you know something that's evolved out of that but even having a a single disc on the perimeter of the of the wheel that's something that existed before eric buell even came along you know you can find examples we, we were talking before the show about um uh getsy brian getsy brian thank which you which is a, a moto guzzi uh aftermarket moto guzzi company Tuner, yeah, yeah from from the Customizer. early Late 90s, early 2000s, sure, that had, I believe it had discs on both sides, but either one side, and they came out with it, and most people thought, I mean, it's a it's a novelty, and I'm sure, again, if you run the calculations, there might be less gyroscopic force with yeah. one disc on a perimeter. I've done I've done the math, and, and you, you definitely have an advantage from an unsprung weight, from a pure unsprung weight advantage, because you have one disc versus two, but you also have an angular momentum advantage versus rotating mass even in, even though the the perimeter disc is farther out uh from the axis yep. but the fact that you're you're it really the math comes down one disc versus two like you know that's the, the main thing i think there's a 40 percent more angular momentum with a two with a standard two disc setup at 320 millimeter disc versus buell's is like 386 i believe there's like a 40 it's not like quite like you know double it's 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 so like yeah. a forty percent increase. So there is there is something to that, and and you know the only thing I wish I could do is sit down with different wheels and different brakes and look at the Buell system because Buell's system very much is a disc and wheel. Yeah, and you're system. you're separating out. You'd be if you're running the calculations, you're doing it. A lot of people do it with just the discs, and I think that's right. I, I, almost a misnomer to say. I think that. it is. It's it's not entirely fair, but but there is something to be said. Yeah, there is if, something. If iterated to be said. upon, perhaps it might have a a, a good a, a effect over the course of proper engineering over time. Now, the the problem is what happens in practicality. So, from what I've seen over the past few years, past what has it been six or seven years? Is <clears throat> these brakes warp? incredibly easy and they do it on an, a, a big level right it's a huge pie plate of a disc and it warps heavily and in the racing application even with super hardcore really really well done discs that were bespoke to the race teams they would warp in a session right so my my good friends were racing these bikes back in the uh 2013 era right so it was the buell 1190 r X. This is the EBR 11. Sorry, X. EBR, yeah. and it was in the AMA, um, you know, Superbike or Superstock or whatever the heck Superbike. it was at the time, Superbike class. So watching what they would have to do to get the discs, the wheels on and off, the amount of burnt hands, the amount of of trickery to get the disc off at the same time as the caliper, removing it from the from the fork. It was just a pain in the butt. It was stupid, right? You would waste time at qualifying trying to get wheels on and off because number one, you you smoked a rotor instead of uh, actually needing to change a tire. And then number two, you can barely change it quickly and you got to get the guys out in qualifying to get fast. And then if it was in the race, the poor guys would end up having to deal with a, a warped rotor, which is an incredibly... Uh, 
incredibly difficult, uh, very distracting thing to have to deal with. You can still break, but holy crap, it's a it's a it's a pucker factor ten to do it. So watching that, I was like, ah. And then, but even before that, when uh, Danny Eslick won the championship on the Buell eleven twenty five. He won, quote unquote, the championship of the 600cc. It was the first year of Daytona Sport Bike, right? So they allowed 1125cc, water-cooled, four-valve twin. When I would imagine they made 130 to 140 horsepower, I'm guessing. I mean, pretty good. And the R6s of the era were probably making 125 to 130, maybe not quite as much. Uh, Ducatis were racing in there, and they're 848ccs, and Triumphs were 675s, right? The fuel at the time that they were running was a really low level Sunoco. This was a spec, one of the first years of the spec fuel. And that spec fuel came from the uh, NASCAR era or NASCAR level. The ranks. Right. Because Sunoco was the the official fuel of NASCAR sure. at the time. So very efficient in a big combustion chamber, big surface area. When I say big, the size of say an 1125R piston. So the bikes that made more power and I owned one, I had an A, I have an A48 that it made good power on that fuel, like not bad. Whereas the R6s and GSXRs and all the, with the little teeny pistons, four cylinders, they had a rough time of doing anything with it. All of my buddies that were on the various teams would, it would just be like beating their heads against the wall because no amount of cam timing or ignition timing or anything was really getting them anywhere with it. It was very difficult. So you had the fuel suiting the bike, the rules suiting the bike because it was, you know, an overdog, nearly double in CC size. I know a twin isn't as efficient as a four cylinder per uh, CC, which is why for years there's been extra cc's for twins as opposed to fours and superbike whether it be 750 to 1000 or 1000 to uh what is it 1200 now so there's always been that okay fair enough but we're talking nearly double in this class so he won the championship and Denny's no slot no, no slot it's rad it was good for him right and you can't it, that's the one good thing is that at least it was Danny you, you got somebody that was riding hard and be, I mean he put himself on the line doing that it was there was cuz that bike was frankly inferior but still he managed to do it even even with the 1125 cc's it was inferior so what i was going to say starting off of this is one time i was at a major suspension manufacturer's place and i was looking at a lineup of fork tubes and all the fork tubes were i can't remember which side the buell disc is but it's it was on the right hand side it was on the right hand side so always all these right hand fork tubes i'm looking at them like why do you have only the right hand fork tubes person in charge showed me where the fork tubes would come loose the bottom part which is upside down fork so there's an aluminum casting that holds the front axle and then it goes into a a steel tube that goes up into an aluminum outer tube that is bolted to the um the triple clamp on the bike right so the unsprung weight is a steel tube with a with a aluminum cast aluminum casting at the bottom, and that casting it depends on the fork. They're usually threaded in and then uh, staked uh, with a uh, with some sort of a grub screw or something like that. And each one of these would come loose and would come loose to so bad that it actually would start leaking fluid at the bottom. Uh, and they would have to change them at least every race weekend, if not every other day. So there was a huge amount of these. It was almost as bad as the brake discs. So this is, this is because the, the the braking force on that side yep. of the wheel is torquing. Right. So the the where the brake disc is is relative to where the caliper is mounted on the fork, it's cantilevered out so far 
that the forces would act on to the, to the lower fork tube. Now, if it had been a, a, a right side up or a normal type of fork with the, the lower stanchion being the outer tube, they, you wouldn't, well, I'm sure there would still be some force involved, but it wouldn't nearly be as bad. But then you're compromising other parts of the chassis because, uh, you know, the uh, right uh, upside down, quote unquote, forks have been de rigueur for now, what, 30 years almost. So uh, since the since the mid late 80s, it that kinda has the, been 30 years. I was about to say no, but like you kind of think about it you're like, yeah, yeah it's 80, been a while. late 80s when you started seeing GP bikes yeah. with upside down forks. Right. So. That, that was something for me that was just made me shake my head because I already had a bit of disdain as a Ducati guy for those, those overdog, larger-engined Buells. Then I rode one. Okay, so I got to ride. A, a, uh, there's a gentleman, his name is Chase McFarland. He was racing the AMA um, and regionally uh, in Northern California. And he was working for w- one of the teams, and he let me ride it. And I, was, I, I have to admit I was impressed by the bike, right? It was an 1125R. And so it wasn't 1190RX. It was the older version with the with the fairing that's about three or four feet wide. I can't remember <laughs> what the exact measurement is, but I, it's somewhere between it's three and four bike. feet. It's a wide bike for a twin too. Oh, that's sure. That's right? right? It, it's like all of the goods of a twin with n- all of the bads of, of a twin. All of the bads of a four-cylinder with n- none of the goods of a twin. I don't know. Whatever it is, it's horrible. So I get on the bike and I'm at a short track that doesn't have a lot of braking and I had a lot of fun on the bike and it worked really, really well. Okay, fair enough. G- good to know that the end engine's good. The chassis is actually remarkably good. Uh, but that bike had been modified so heavily. I mean, so heavily to do that job that you can't even fathom how much it would cost to try and replicate it. I wouldn't even want to. And I'm not even talking about hard parts. We're talking man hours of changing every single possible thing from the belt drive to the radiators, to the bodywork, to the engine, to the, to everything. It was horrible. Was his bike chain drive? I believe so. I mean, anybody that you had to, all right. How else are you going to change gearing the suit track to track? You, the belt drives. I mean, you know, I'm making. No, you just you don't you don't have to change the gearing. You just twist the throttle harder. Oh yeah, right. You just that's that's what we say about everything. Sure, just twist the hard. You know what, Danny Eslick probably could. Right. You know, there's only so many people that could. He probably could. He's one of them. Like we were saying in one of our past shows, there's certain riders that can take an excellent bike and, and make it go very fast. And some riders can take really shitty bikes and make them go fast. And I think that's the mark of a good rider. And I think Eslick probably is one of those. Absolutely. All right. So that's my, that, that was in, in my racing time, the experience with those bikes, that's just a small smidgen of, of the issues that I saw from everything, the, the tunability of that engine, which I really can't, I'm not going to lay on Buell, but you've talked shit about it before. That's a Rotax engine. It's not it's even Rotax. an American engine by a long shot, right? Well, and that's and that's one of the things I love when when EBR came along and they were like, no, this is this is an EBR engine. Well, it's a Rotax engine. You guys bought the design. Now you made some changes to it. Sure. Did they build them in um, Wisconsin? Are they assembled there? I don't know. The they they get them from from Rotax and then they they do their thing. They've do they disassemble little, them and reassemble I'm them? Pretty sure, yeah. Uh, well, still, it's still the the base of it is not made in America. No, it's it's a modified modified head. I think um, yeah. I don't know if the crank's different or not, but it's. I'm pretty sure it is. I I think what I remember of the EBR <clears throat> era is yeah. that you know what they were having to redo because they were trying to make them better. They're trying, right? And those engines really aren't that bad. It's a big twin. No, it's not the it's not the it's not the worst engine in the world. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't get too uppity on it. My my big thing is like like you talked about the brake disc, uh, the perimeter brake disc system, and, and the drawbacks of that. And like, there's just there's just things where like okay, you look at that huge hunk of a caliper, which is another part of that that equation you have to factor in. It's like well, 
you know, you've got this brick of a caliper with its eight pistons and you're putting eight pistons worth of braking force, like what would normally be two calibers worth of braking force and heat into a single disc. And that's why you're seeing so much warping from the and heat. Fade. And fade. They yeah. would not work very well for long. Which is why you see the, these contrived air routing systems on, on the 1190RX. And, and it's a whole... It's a you, whole... could, you, you could say, though, that, that you could say that, you know what? They were iterating on it to make it better. Okay. Fair enough. But why beat your head against the fucking wall when there's already better systems out there for less money and that will take that will be better when you're actually on track and you know doing it you know what i'm saying changing the brake changing a wheel dealing with the cost of it so that's something that's something you should probably bring up is the fact that like the race teams the race teams weren't happy with these systems buell was mandating that you had to use this perimeter disc setup that you had to use what was coming off the, the assembly line because that's the marketing thing. That's what makes it a Buell. That's what makes it special. We have to promote this ZTL patented Eric Buell special whammy, all praise me Jesus <laughs> setup because yeah. that's that's the secret oh, sauce. It was, to it the was brand. a big deal. And the, it, it, every single team would just be like, this is horrible, but we have to use it until I got to World Superbike. Well, that's what I wanted to get us to. I want to get us to the World Superbike because you, because that for me, was like the nail in the coffin for for the the Buell argument because you sit there and you're like okay you're at the you're at the pinnacle of production racing, you've got this bike that you know you've supposedly honed in American Superbike, and you're coming out racing against the big boys against the big factories and you're a factory effort you know I think people forget like that Eric Buell Racing was was a factory team they weren't running as Nevo team which I think they probably should have done absolutely they're running under the factory rules and they're five six seven seconds off the pace and you start looking at it and you, and you can watch the team struggle like so they start you know, i think the first thing they started fiddling around was they got the fuel out of the frame and they made a fuel cell they put it under the seat like every normal team in the world does because uh, and but what, what that said though you know a stock kawasaki zx10 or a stock yamaha r1 a lot of the fuel still is carried mostly forward and then they would make these bespoke uh, weldments that go underneath the seat. So everybody was kind of yeah, doing that. You, so you, you have to be fair. You have to be fair. What's raced in World Superbike is a few generations or a few evolutions yeah. off from what's being produced from the, from the factory. And I get that. And that's fair. And that's, and that's something like when I look at a Panigale. Oh, like sure. The, what Chaz Davis is on. Oh, sure. Holy shit. When, when I was in Hareth, uh, for the test, we were looking at the R1s and looking at, you could, cause they hadn't like kind of like polished out all the stuff. They were mm-hmm. still using like the test fuel tanks and all that. Sure. So you could see where they were grinding all stuff. I mean, there was so many parts looking like, no, that's not on the stock bike. You know, isn't no, that and that's what's fucking rad about it. That's what I enjoy. That's what was the fun of it. But right, really that's, so that's why I'm saying you can't, is it apples to apples say, well, Buell had to take the fuel. But they did because I tell you what, the fuel in those frames sloshing around was a mega problem. Well, mega. And that's what I'm saying. Like, you know, I think I think the it's not entirely fair to bring up like what you said, like Kawasaki or, or whomever because they're all doing it um, because none of them are saying like, hey, we've got this crazy innovative thing that we're doing with the fuel. Like Buell is saying like, oh, hey, we put the fuel in the frame. We're because using, it works better we're and it doesn't. Because it doesn't. No. It's because motorcycling evolved from fuel in the frame, fuck, man, like 50 years ago, maybe longer. I, you know, like we were trying to, we were trying to talk before the show about like, you know, where these points in time were, but fuel in the frame, that's like generation one. That's when like motorcycles were really just bicycles with engines welded on. And there them. was a couple of people that tried it, like Eagley Vincent, which worked Oh, it worked okay, but it wasn't like it didn't work well enough to continue. 
And as people tried underslung fuel tanks like Honda did with a GP bike in the 80s, and it worked horribly because it, it changed the, the moment of inertia in such a bad way. There's certain There's been over and over and over multiple ways, times to where people have tried oh, sure. that type of stuff, and, right? And we still see it. Like even in MotoGP, there was a huge, I remember with Yamaha, there was a huge deal uh, with where the fuel cell was on the bike because the factory guys had the new fuel cell and it was literally smack dab right in the center, the, the center of gravity on the motorcycle. And it was, and it was more importantly, it was linear. So like the, when the fuel dropped, it, it was dropping. It wasn't, I'm trying, I'm trying to describe this with my hands, which is making for really good radio. I, I was about to try and yeah. describe what you were yeah. doing. But it, it, but it, but it, it was looks basically, like you're, you're uh, self-simulating a very large <laughs> penis. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it, it, it was more of a, it was more like in a cylinder or in a box that goes up and down than it was. Cause somebody's to, to keep the, the, so as the fuel dropped, it, it wasn't changing the weight distribution side of the bike. To side. And right, well, four to aft, or four to aft, right? Whereas, like some of these fuel systems, you see, it's like you know, we call it like the the airbox cover. It's really like what you see yeah, the sure. fuel, the fuel tank is really just an airbox cover, but because like the the fuel cell comes down the back of what is considered the fuel tank and kind of up to the seat, and it's kind of like a trapezoid, and then like you know, as, when you get to about half a tank, then it's all underneath the sink. But before that, it's kind of like and this is there's around. nothing new under the sun. Go look, go go get a Yamaha. FZR 400 and look at its fuel fuel tank. This is from the 80s, 90s, early 90s. FZR 600s. It's this is like give me a break. This is not. There's it isn't something that's just revolutionary. No. It's like yes, moving the weight that is it, it literally fluid that changes as you ride. Moving where that mass is is a pretty critical thing, and they've been thinking about it for a while. It's just a matter of how much is it going to cost. To, to do that. Would you make a production bike with the fuel tank under the seat? Yeah, it's really a whole lot easier to just make a fuel tank that bolts to the frame straight up. It is. Yeah. And, and so when you look at the practical applications of manufacturing, I think they've tried it and they look at it. It's like, ugh, this is a pain in the butt. Literally and figuratively, why should we put this fuel here where we have to deal with it? Well, I'll just make race bikes that are trick and don't. And so I, with the Buell in the frame thing, uh, the, the Buell fuel in the frame thing, yeah, it's it boils the fuel uh, well, way that was, more, that and then, then all of a sudden issue. you have to have different like stuff inside of it to keep it from boiling the fuel and extra fuel lines, and there were so many failure modes to it. It was just again beating your head against the wall just to think that you might have something new under the sun, which you didn't. Anyway, it was dark. I, guess, I just just to finish my point was that the factory team had this fuel tank that. As the fuel dropped, it didn't change the handling characteristics of the bikes. Whereas, like the Tech Twa guys didn't have that fuel tank, and they were saying, like, "Hey, this is worth a couple, a couple tenths a lap because, especially when the fuel is at its." This is, is its when maximum. the fuel, the cap was at the back of the bike. No, this was a couple years ago. This was when Cal Crutchlow was still a part of it, and I remember because he was bitching and moaning because he wanted that fuel tank because his thing was he couldn't fight in the early part of the race with with the leaders because the fuel the way it was sitting was too high and it was mucking up the handling of the bike. He wasn't able to be competitive until he had about half a tank, you know, mid race. But by that point he was so far behind, he's not fighting for first. He's fighting for like seventh, but you look at, you look at the design of the, the, the Buell frame and it's just, just gigantic diagonal beam, you know? So as the fuel's dropping, not only is the weight getting the center of gravity is, is getting lower and lower and lower, but it's also getting more rearward rearward. Yeah. Rearward, 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 rearward. I'm getting slurry. I got a drink. <laughs> Dew. <laughs> He's taking a big old gulp of dew right now. It's awesome. <laughs> oh, it's so good. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, it just and then and then you had the oil in the swing arm. So you're adding weight, you're adding unsprung mass to the bike, which Ugh. is like the, this thing that people are trying to avoid at you all spend costs. All of your so it, the, the, this is another basic tenet of racing is the first thing you do is take weight off of the rotating components, the biggest rotating, which is the wheels. That's the first thing you do, period. That's it. Then after which, that, which is why you and I say the best modification you can make to a bike is is high performance wheels. First thing first, that yeah. would be it. It's free horsepower, it's free handling, it's free braking, right? All the way around. Then after that, it's unsprung stuff. So anything that is like I was talking about with the fork tube earlier that, you know, the steel the steel uh, on top of an aluminum casting and it, that could be uh, bad because it's heavier, but you're then making a trade-off with stiffness and, and different things. Swing arm being lighter, it's good. You know what I mean? There's so many different things. This is anything that isn't on the spring. So how do we how do we describe anything unsprung? So that is anything below the suspension, basically. Yeah, I guess that's it. That's as so you're looking as at you your axles, you're looking at your fork tubes, your or your their fork bottoms, wheels, brake disc calipers, fenders. Yeah. Uh, swing arm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's second. And then weight from the bike, then weight from rotating components in the engine are, is, it's probably about the same as what you do with wheels if you can, but that's very that's expensive, yeah. right? It's expensive. It's time consuming. Uh, it's gnarly. So they, these are all things that are, are part and parcel of what you do as a race bike and seeing what you, this guy was trying to do with these bikes, like give me a break with the swing, the swing arms are these huge cumbersome castings, big and wide, like nothing is light and lithe. Nothing looked the way it needed to until the 1190, which I will say looked better. I'm not saying it was great, but... Did you ever ride one? You know, I don't think I ever did. I don't think I ever got a chance to ride the 1190. Yeah, no. I did. did. Yeah, I did down in Florida um, because Buell sure as hell isn't going to invite me to a press launch anytime soon. Sure. And to, to, and, and this, is, this is another thing that just goes back to this idea of like, okay, so you're going to... You're going to tout how American you are. You're going to, you're going to use that brand, but then like, you're going to shut down any criticism. Like, like unless you're on board with the, the EBR plan with the Buell plan, you're not getting invited to a press launch. They are the quintessential brand of we're going to cherry pick our media to make sure it's only favorable, sure. which I just completely disrespect completely. I have no respect for that whatsoever. Uh, I have tremendous respect for, for a brand that says, Hey, you know, Jensen, we think you're wrong. Come out and ride a bike. We want to prove it to you. Which is something Honda did recently. Which right? is why they got so much kudos in my book for it. Because it's like, oh, you think I, you want to prove it to me? That 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 shows right on. That shows you think one that you think you're right, and two that you're willing to put your money where your mouth is. Yeah, instead of having something major to hide. Sure. Um, so yeah, I got to ride an 1190 RX um, down in Florida, and it wasn't on the track; it was just on the street. But it was it was it was interesting because yeah, you know, like you said, the motors motors pretty good chassis is not bad um but it's it's like all the details because that was you know you sit there and you're like so this is an eighteen thousand dollar sport bike so that's well within panigale range it's more expensive than than the aprilia rsv4 which i i rant and rave about um it's it's definitely way more expensive than anything coming from japan and you sit there and you're like but it's not it's not anywhere near the quality of any of these where's bikes. the beef that's what i'd say yeah you it's where the beef so 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 here's the thing right like like the traction control for example is a great example where it was like oh we have 21 level traction control how many levels does your ducati have is your oh it's only got eight well ours <laughs> has got 21 yeah and you're like well yeah okay but how does it work so so the traction control on on the buells on the ebrs was so messed up that ebr sent out a thing to its dealers basically saying like hey when like when joe blow goes out for a test ride turn the traction control off because we've been having this issue where the traction control 
like stalls the bike in the parking lot before they get out there because it's just there's just something not quite right there. <laughs> so let's say you want to do let's say you want to turn that off. Well, okay, so you get into the screen. Well, before you can touch anything on the traction control, and this is even like on the consumer side, like, hey, I want to change it from level set, you know, seven to level ten or whatever, you have to first agree to the legal disclaimer that pops up that says you're about to change the traction <laughs> control settings and you're taking your life into your own hands because this bike was built in America, so no God knows what's gonna do to you when you turn, you know, a knob on it. <laughs> and by virtue of being American, you know, litigiousness comes with it. That, that right? was probably the most American thing about the about oh, the motorcycle. That's so sad. You know, and it's and it's like like that's a really shitty cynical thing you know, for, for a legally yep. trained person like me to say, but it's kind of true too. Yep. Um, so you sit there and you're like, okay, so the traction control is kind of a mess. This, this bike vibrates and like everything feels cheap and you can just kind of like the, the air box cover, cause it's not a fuel tank, you know, it's vibrating and it just feels like this cheap plastic. And you just look at this bike, like, like, you know, this was this, you know, like the, the cynical motorcyclists, if you took the brand off of it, they'd be like, oh man, this is a cheap bike made from China. Which, which I think is not a fair thing to say. I think you can t- totally have good things come out of China, but like that, that kind of mentality yeah, sure. of like it, this cheapness. Oh, it must be Chinese. This is a Chinese knockoff yeah. kind of feel. That that's how the bike felt, you know. And then it's got its American flag on it, which which is what really kills me. That's what really really kills me. Like, it's like this should be above the quality. Yeah, if we were really going to put the American flag on it. It better be the best damn thing on the market, and it's really not. And and you kind of sit there and you're just kind of like. All right, so it's overpriced. It doesn't quite perform as good as other bikes. You know, the engine's good. It handles okay, but you're just like, like, like you said, where's the beef? Why would I get excited about buying this bike? And when I, I can go buy an Aprilia V4 that's won multiple wicked. World Superbike Championships, heavier or as heavy or, you know, it's big, but small, <laughs> right? 10 pounds of shit in a five-pound bag that hauls ass. Sounds amazing doing it. Right. And has all the whistles and bells, sure, control, wheel right? control, Panigale. traction control that actually works, you know, some, traction control that'll let you power slide around a turn. It, without knowing what you're doing it. Right, right. Right. That's so good. And the same goes for Panigale. And now the same would go for R1 and, you know, Kawasaki. Everyone's catching up. All right. Yeah. Everybody's caught up. But at the time, that was kind of the thing and it was just not good. And I think, and I think, and I think this is where, this is where EBR, I think, got in trouble because... I think they they I think the Buell brand made great street bikes. Bikes meant for the street. But I think the problem was Eric was such a racing guy. And you can see that with the new company, EBR, Eric Buell Racing. I want to go racing. I want to go be an AMA. Like priority number one was to get back into American Superbike. You know, it was the priority was then to get into World Superbike. And you're sitting there going, like, you're a startup company. You know, you should be you should be like Oh, such a miser old man with your cash like you should be just you know making it a a, a thing for every penny you know and, and getting go, to the point where you can sell enough bikes to afford to go racing right when you're just try. building bikes just to make homologation numbers it's, it, you're, you're building bikes to make uh, an ama or world superbike homologation number you're not building bikes to meet the demand of what your dealers are, are asking for and it should be a gigantic red flag when your dealers are like picking up two, three bikes, you know, for their initial order and not making a second order because they're going like, Hey, no, we, we still got those two, three bikes or we sold one we sold maybe two, like, hold on, hold on to it. Like we're, we need some help here. We need you to drop the price like three, four grand. And then things start selling maybe a little bit better, but you're still having trouble. Like my biggest issue probably with, with EBR when it showed back up, you know, the racing issue aside was this idea of like the first bike you're going to come out with is a super bike 
the most competitive class to sell a motorcycle in. Like you're selling on spec sheet, you're selling on performance. Like like people just care about how much power does it make, how much does it weigh, what whistles and bells are you selling with it? You know, what cool electronics. And it's got to look good, no doubt. And it's got to look good. And it did. Good. That bike looked a lot better than any previous Buell. Yeah, I I, I, I liked it. I, I wouldn't say I loved it, but it, yep. it definitely... Uh, but I'm saying at least it wasn't the Morphodite horrible 1125R with the freaking sure. weird, sure, sure, sure. strange like tumors hanging off the side of it and all that, right? It no, was, it was that's not that enough. bad. And then, but, but then the follow-up bike is the SX, which is a Street Fighter. And, and it literally is like... I mean, you can you can you can take this two ways. You can say like, oh, you know, it's cool that like it's a true Street Fighter. It's that same. It's the exact same engine from the Superbike. They just put you know a flat bar on it. Yeah, and called it good to go, which is like true to the Street Fighter yep. kind of instead ethos. of a kind of dumbed down, softened. Well, up. you know, people say dumbed down, but like the reality is, is like Street Fighters are supposed to be for the street. Do you want a bike that makes peak power at thirteen thousand RPMs, or do you want, or I should. Say, yeah, peak power at 13,000 RPMs? Or do you want a bike that makes peak power at like 7,000 RPMs because of where the torque curves are and where the timing is? I mean, a good street bike makes power down low. Good race bike makes power up high. That's A just, great street fighter, it would be a Ducati street fighter, makes it <clears> all over the place, right? All both, which is why both of us have owned them. Right. Right. You know, so a little bias there. But like, you know, there's that idea of, you know, the reason they did it that way is because it was cheap. It was the easy way to do it. Sure. Just change the plastics, put a bar on it, call sure. it good. You got a second model. But then the issue is like how, you know, no one buys street fighters in the U S it's a, it's a segment that doesn't sell in the U S it's a very niche thing that sells pretty much in Germany, France, and Italy. And that's it. And if you don't have distribution there, what's the point of doing it? Because you're basically just making bikes that no one are going to buy the, to me, like the, the bike that they needed to come out with first was probably the bike they wanted to come out with third was that adventure model. And we still haven't seen it. And it's still a time, you know, ways out. And by the time it comes out, I worry that the the market will have passed on that, which is unfortunate because that is a hot mar- hot market. That, and if they could come out with a competitive thing, they had a little bit of love with the Ulysses, horrible name. <laughs> really, I mean, I'm sorry. Really, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I love the story of the Odyssey, and I love you know the story of Odysseus. So, I, I'm uh, all I can think of is Ulysses S. Grant. Right, I don't really have a. I just it's just a horribly pronounced horrible to look at name. There's certain words that are just right. You might as well call it the moist, right? <laughs> <laughs> so for me, <laughs> it's like the Buell moist. No, oh, Jesus, like the cellar door. Uh, so that for me, I it was a but that bike was, I guess apparently okay. I'm a lot of people I people know that have had them. That's not, that's why I say bad. like Buell made great street bikes because they didn't have to be the most powerful the lightest thing in the world you know like just build a solid bike that's reliable it's comfortable and it's fun to ride that's and, and that's those an Harley easier. engines kind of lent themselves to it simple ish and brappy low down torque not a lot of hot horsepower eh i mean i rode a couple of them my first experience on a buell unfortunately was an x1 which was like 2000 2001 ish and i rode it from Laguna Seca over to Carmel Valley during a World Superbike weekend. And I actually enjoyed it. I had just become a Ducati technician not too long. So I was used to Monsters and 916s and 996s and stuff. So I, I enjoyed the ride, but the exhaust, part of the exhaust rattled off on my way home. And that no. was like, for me, it was like par for the course. All the shit talking we'd ever done about Buell was right there on in the in the seven miles that I had on that bike. And then I, you know, I rode it off as crap. I right. mean, I, I can tell you someone that that's had to 
see every single recall notice for the last seven years. Yeah. Um, I mean, when Buell was in business, like Buell was by far the number one, we're recalling this motorcycle for an issue company, you know, like them, Harley Davidson and BMW. And it was Buell by a nose every time because it's just, it just, that was the other thing like this. Oh, it's made in America. Well, apparently it's not being very, made very well in America. Yeah. You know? Poorly designed in America, poorly executed, poorly assembled, unfortunately. There's some good ideas, but never never really had, you know, the beef, right, of a combination of everything that with one bike that really did well, it was all of them were just kind of, yeah, right, not not that great. And, and you know what? The market spoke and the failures happened and Harley-Davidson spoke. But I'll say I th- I was a little depressed by Harley Davidson. I I will agree. I think that Harley I've had a, had a couple of Buell lovers that have said they left them out in the cold. You know what? Sometimes it's from a Darwinian aspect. You gotta let something die like that. If it doesn't, if it, if it can't survive on its own merit, then you gotta let it die, right? Yeah, I, I hear people say that, and then and then we hear the echo of it with with EBR and Hero. Like it's almost like we've just defaulted to the same argument. And okay, so we're coming back to Hero, and this is what I really well, want to hear you talk okay, about. Okay, well, let me finish up with Harley, and then we'll get to Hero. How about okay. that? Because because I think it's important to note two things at the time. One, Harley Davidson almost went out of business. People don't, I don't think, totally understand this. Harley Davidson legitimately almost went out of business in the recession. Really. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we talked about it, but not like with that much em- emphasis on it. Like, 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 legitimately, they got he got he Harley Davidson got a cash infusion from Warren Buffett and um, half a half a million dollar or half a million half a billion with a B and, and another lender as well, and I can't remember their name, but basically got lent a billion dollars. They they basically had to completely restructure the company. This is this is why I give um, Keith Wandel a, a huge tip of the hat for for the hard work that he did who, who is he he's the oh well, he's no longer the ceo of, of harley davidson but he was the ceo brought in to restructure harley davidson he came from johnson controls he's basically a bean counter um you know but but that's what harley davidson needed in 2008 2009 was a bean counter because they had at that point in time they were a company geared to making Five hundred thousand motorcycles every year, and the for reality the was for the world. And the reality was they were making like three hundred thousand motorcycles for the, for the world every year. So this was a company that needed massive restructuring, and needed to be massively scaled down to the times. They needed to renegotiate all their contracts with their labor force. They needed to close some of their factories because they didn't need to have you know as many factories that they did at the time for for the amount because they just weren't doing the productions. And then they had you know MV Augusta. As a holding, they had Buell in the holding. Envy Augusta was a nightmare. They sold it for a euro, and I think they were happy to write off all the debt and everything they did on it. Buell was was a little bit more difficult, but Buell sales were slumping. Buell sales had been slumping the years before they sold it. So it's not like Buell was this thriving company when, that just got shut down and, oh, poor boo-hoo me. It was a company that was failing, and oh, I think a lot of those failures were Harley's own creation. I think sure. they mismanaged Buell in a lot of ways, and I think that's fair to put that at Harley-Davidson's doorstep. But if I'm the CEO of Harley Davidson and I'm in the middle of the recession or I'm at the start of the recession and I'm looking at the most iconic motorcycle brand in America going belly up on my watch, I'm going to do everything I can. You bet your damn dollar I am to make sure that that brand's okay. And if that means selling Buell and shutting it down, so be it. That's the right decision. You're not going to you're not going to take Buell over Harley Davidson. What rational human being is going to do that? <laughs> the, the brand sure. that sells like 11,000 motorcycles its last year versus the brand that sold 300 and something on 1,000 motorcycles that year. Get the fuck out of here. But, you know, the hard part is is 
you know, Buell was using Harley Davidson Motors. Buell's being sold out of Harley Davidson dealerships. Buell were being financed through Harley Davidson uh, financial services. How do you sell that company to someone else without, and if you're Harley Davidson being like, and we want to have nothing, we have, we yeah. want to have no part of this. Yeah. We don't want to have to sell you motors. We don't want you to sell dealerships. can do. There's nothing really you can sell there. And that, I think that's something that people don't really understand. There's this idea like, oh, BRP was going to buy it or other people were going to going to offer. It's like, but what are they actually going to buy? How is that actually going to be divested from the company? And the answer is it's not. It's no, too tied No in. Harley dealership would take, they, they, they would, it would get restructured. They'd have to redo a dealer agreement and they'd look at it like, no, I'm not going to own, I'm not going to try and sell bikes that aren't a Harley. Right. Period. So then there goes your dealer network right off the bat. Right. Which, which we've seen with EBR having to start back up. Dealer network is king because dealer network is right there. Like if you've got like 500 dealers and you can say, Hey, minimum purchase is three bikes. You just sold 1500 bikes, my friend. Yeah. But if you're starting at zero and you've got 30 dealers, which is kind of how EBR was, I think they have about 50 dealers and you're selling them three bikes. That's 150 bikes. And to understand the scale of that for the listeners, Ducati, which is a, a niche Euro manufacturer doesn't that does 10,000 units a year ish in the United States. Yeah. Has 160 North American dealers. 50 of which are in California. 40% of Ducati's bikes for many years were sold in California alone. 40%, 40, 40%. Anyway, so. Which is why it was such a huge deal when EBR came along and they didn't really have any dealers in California. Yeah. So it's like, okay, so you're selling basically only super bikes and sport bikes. And you're not present in one, the largest motorcycle market in the US, and two, the largest sport bike market in the US. By a long shot. By a long shot. So it's like, mm, mm. So so that gets us into to EBR with Hero. And so when 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 Eric was finally let go from Harley Davidson, you know, there was a lot of talk, you know, and I I got to see the the pitch deck, which was really interesting. What's a pitch deck? A pitch deck is like the slides or actually like in the olden days, it was literally a book that you would flip in front of an investor. It was like a flip book. Yeah. Like a binder. A, a deck that you're pitching. You're, yeah. This is your pitching. This is your, okay. your deck. This now, is like now Mad it's like, Men style. Yeah. Now it's like PowerPoint. Okay. And it's basically like, hey, this is the product. This is the opportunity. This is what we're doing. This is how much we're looking. This is what we projected sales are. It's your business plan, basically. Yep. And so it was interesting, but but no one, there was no takers. And I, and part of that is, I think, because it's it's Buell and everyone's kind of like, okay, well, you know, what are you going to do here? And I think part of it, too, is like, hey, man, like, worst financial crisis we've ever seen since the 1930s. We're not doing anything. What like money this. do you think we're going to invest? And you think we're going to invest it in, in a motorcycle company? Get the heck out of here. We're looking at, like, something more, yeah. more of a sure These are thing. toys. Toys aren't selling right now. Which is, like, a huge, yeah, consumer discretionary income, something that doesn't exist right now. So that's that's tough timing, and that's 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 no fault of Eric's whatsoever. But there was definitely, let's just say, the investor market was very cold to what he was selling, and he had a very hard time finding capital. He was lucky in the sense that he found uh, Hero Motorcorp, which is uh, an Indian motorcycle manufacturer, largest Indian motorcycle manufacturer, depending on the year and depending how you want to count it, one of the largest motorcycle manufacturers in the world. So this is a company with just billions of dollars, but selling. Lots of small bore, small CC, two wheeled vehicles, mostly in Southeast Asia, which is why it's the biggest motorcycle right. manufacturer in Southeast the world. Southeast Asia, India. Yep. I mean, they're 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 the volume seller. Yep. So, but but very interesting, and we're seeing an interesting play coming out of India, and that's a whole different podcast. But it, it's interesting, and it's of note that we're seeing Western brands partnering with yep. Indian brands, and it's sure. it's going to be a thing, and and it's only something we're going to talk about more 
as the years go on because that's where the industry is headed. Sidebar that. So so we see Hero invest into into EBR and we see the cash infusion. And there's a couple things that are going on there. One, I think I, I don't know how you would how you would do this differently, but one of the critical issues for EBR's failure is the fact that Eric gave up so much of his company so early. And it's one of those things where when you are in a startup and when you're in kind of going through institutional money, you need to have headspace for your ability to grow through different rounds. Like when you go through a series A versus a series B versus like a mezzanine and then uh, a finally like an exit IPO kind of thing, you need to have headway where you can grow into that. And that's the idea of like early investors, you don't want to give away too much of your company. Like let's say you want to give away 10% just throwing out a number so that there. later on you might be able to offer it up to people that are putting in so more money later on i can offer up 20 percent, and then i'll i'll still have 70 percent of the company for myself and then the next round i can give up a little bit more and that's how you retain control of your company when you give up 49 point what is it 49.7 or whatever it was percent of your company right off the bat this was know, to harley davidson in no, the 90s well he did it to harley harley oh, as well but he did it with, he did it with hero yeah so so when you give up but your, this is ebr this is EBR. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting that You got to keep up. Um, when you've up so much your company right off the bat, there's no room to grow. There's no room for another investor to come on board. There's no room for a current investor to invest more money back in to double down on their investment without you giving up control of your company, which at that point, you know, what are you in it for? And this is where MV Agusta is right now. This is where, well, MV Agusta's problem is a lot more complicated, but, Sorry. but that's part of it too, though. It's like, okay, so you gave up 25% right off the bat, which is... Not, not horrible, the, not but not horrible. the best. Not horrible, not ideal, but not horrible. They got a pretty good price for that 25%, though, I do think. Whereas I don't think EBR really got a, that great of a deal from Hero as far as like how much money was put in. Sure. Now, what they did get was, Ear was like, hey, we're going to give you, I think it was 20 million or 25, and then we're going to give you whatever the opposite of that. So I think, I can't remember if they, were, if they invested 20 million or invested 25, but then they were a contract for for 20 or 25 million so the reality is they're giving them almost 45 million dollars some of predicated it on having some things done some of it some of it in equity to be to be an equity partner and some of it to be like hey you're going to do some contract work for us and you're going to be a consultant and you're going to do some some design and some engineering and that's great the downside is like like when you're a startup when you're a ceo in a startup like your number one goal is to raise money for your company and and for a motorcycle company that's like about a hundred million dollars so you're looking at EBR was started with about, let's say, half that. So you're already behind the gun. You're already behind the gun financially. You're already going into a tough market for, for not only motorcycles, but also the segments that you're picking. You're already like doing these kind of crazy things that are sending you outside the norm. And then, oh, by the way, you're going to go racing. You're going to spend all this money racing. And, that, and I think that's where we really get into trouble. And that's where we kind of see with with, with EBR kind of going under where it's like, oh, well, we've got $20 million in liabilities. So it's not only have you spent that $45 million, but you've racked up another $20 million in, in stuff that you owe. And that's where kind of Hero was like, and I think this is where it get, things get unfair when, when people place the blame on Hero's lap. You know, they didn't reinvest money back into Buell. I was like, well, why would they? They already spent money to become an equity partner. And that's that's free money. That's like, hey, here's you know $25 million, Enjoy that. Yep. They already said, hey. Would you call that blue sky? Is that the right term? No, no. No. Okay, sorry. So equity part, they became a, but what you're saying is that it was, when you when you say free, what do you mean by that? Well, it's just like, like like it's just saying like, hey, I want to be a part of your company. I want to own half your company. Here's here's a chunk of cash for yeah. it. And you can kind of do whatever you want with that. Okay, but that's not, there's nothing 
tied to that. Whereas well, the rest of it was, there's always, there's always that idea of like use of funds, but that's not usually tied into something like you have to use it for X. It's more like, why are we out here getting money? Because we need to do X. Yep. Um, and then there's that issue of like, so, so they already become an equity partner and then they become a customer and they say, Hey, well, here's some money for a job we want you to do. Well, Buell never finished that. EBR never finished the work they were supposed to do. That's why Hero had to come along and buy all the leftover work at auction. And I don't think people understood that. Like, it's like, hey, they paid for a job to get done. Not all of it got done. So, and that and that's where kind of EBR was when when they came back and said, like, hey, guys, we need some more money. And Hero's like, well, we already gave you money to, to be partners. We already gave you money for us to do work. And you've already racked up more debt. Why would we keep chasing this bad investment with more money? Why would we want to confer further entwine ourselves with you and further throw money at this when like the last time we gave you money, you went and went, you went and spent it all on racing. You didn't actually spend it on what you're supposed to spend it on. But so why would people, we keep giving it to you? A lot of people, the, the conspiracy theorists would say, well, Hero did that on purpose, which is frankly complete bullshit. But I want to hear why you think it's bullshit. I just, it was just gut feeling why hearing somebody say, oh, well, Hero let him fail. And then, you know, that's why they could get all of his intellectual property. Give me a break. Well, first, like what intellectual property are yeah, we talking that's what about I said. here? Okay. You know, the, the oh, perimeter breaking. The perimeter breaks. Congratulations. Feeling the frame. Woo-hoo. Congratulations. <laughs> but I think the proof is in the pudding on that because, because what we didn't see at auction was Hero come along and bid on the company. There wasn't this Machiavellian scheme of, oh, we're going to let Buell fail and buy the company for pennies on the dollar. Didn't happen, did it? No, they came to auction. They bought everything that Buell was working on them for two or for three million dollars, three point two, I believe. And and when they went their other way, they didn't. They didn't. They weren't bidding on the company. They weren't bidding on the brand. They weren't trying to, you know, hire. They were trying to get their people. assets back. They're getting their stuff back, man. And and unfortunately, um, Bruce Belfer from from New Jersey, when he bid on the company, he didn't quite understand or or just straight out lied. I mean, we'll never really know. Um, to his investors, but you know, whatever, whatever the case may be, um, he was like, I didn't know that there was all these problems. I didn't, I didn't know that this stuff that I thought was included in the deal wasn't, even though there's like an itemized list of exactly what you're getting, <laughs> you know, all I didn't know. Well, you know, okay. Whatever the case may be, you're either incompetent or untruthful, you know, pick which one it is. And, and so that deal falls through and we see LAP come out and be the final, the final winner because they actually had the cash and they actually had the ability to do it. Now, whether or not they're making an honest attempt to, to revitalize this brand and to truly bring it back, or if they're just making a really good show of it to appease the Buell fanatics, sell the bikes that they have kind of sit in an inventory and then liquidate everything else and come out of here with a pretty tidy profit that will remain to be seen. And if you know, it'll play itself out in, did, in the did next it year show or two. how much they bought it for. Yeah, they bought it for like $2 million. So $2 million, which man, that gets sucked up really quick. So they could they could end up building a bunch of these bikes, selling them for twelve grand. It'd be interesting to see the math. How many bikes are they going to have to sell for twelve grand a pop, thirteen grand, whatever it is? How much are the machine tools? About, about 170 bikes. 170 bikes, which isn't that much. But right? and that and that doesn't count all the the hard assets that are still there. Oh, that's what I was saying. So once you do that, then if that stops and you don't order a, another tranche of frames or whatever wheels and all that stuff, and you just work through the parts, then you sell a bunch of stuff that you make, you know, machine tools, whether it be Haas VF ones or all the big things, all the machine things. Yeah, that, I can see that. Like, like, well, all right, done. You know, wipe their hands of it. Go. Right. And Thank if you. you're really, really lucky. You can still find some guy, some someone like Belfer or whomever, to come along and buy the Buell brand name for you for a million dollars or whatever at the end of it. Hmm. And that's and that that's to me like if if I was 
if I was in the if I was in the daily business of being a chop shop, which is exactly what Liquid Asset Partners is, they're a chop shop. They take something yep. whole, break it up in parts, and make the profit on the parts. If I was if that was my daily business, that's exactly how I would look at this deal. Like, hey, I can take the leftover inventory, make some bikes, sell them, you know, make a pretty profit, and then I've got all the assets I could probably sell off, and then I can still probably sell this brand name to some idiot who's going to try and start this company all over again. And if I just pretend like I'm trying to start like a motorcycle company and I'm just pretend like I'm going to, you know, give Eric Buell his third go around on life, uh, selling motorcycles and building motorcycles, then I can just kind of get away with this. And when it all fails, you know, no one's going to blame me for it and I can still make my money. Like that, <laughs> that to me was like, that's the perfect business plan. Well, that's the perfect business plan. In- instead of venture capitalism, it's vulture capitalism, right? Isn't that what that kind of company does though? Yeah. I mean, to be fair, like, you know, I, I, I've heard only good things about the people at LAP. I don't want to get like super shitty about it. Sure. But like just from a business perspective, just from a business perspective, this is a bulletproof business plan. You know, like you can just go in there. You can go in there with the best of intentions. You can go with the intention of, of re of, you know, rising Eric Buell racing out of the ashes, like the Phoenix that it is. But like, if you don't and you fail, they're still going to make money. <laughs> they're still going to make money. And that's, 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 that's American business, to be honest. Yeah, that's, sure. that's, that's, that's good the American, most American business. part of all this. <laughs> Always make a dollar. Uh, so, you know, you know, more power to them. I hope, I hope that's not the case. I hope I wanted to see it succeed, but I also want to see it succeed for the right reasons. You know, that's, and that's probably my biggest takeaway from all this. It's not that I don't want to see EBR, you know, fall on his face. It's not that I want to see, you know, Eric Buell's legacy ruined or, or, or see him fail or anything the way I want. I want the opposite of it. I want this to work, but I'm still a rational human being at the end of the day. You know, I still have my, my, my brain between my ears and I look at him just like, that's just not going to work guys. I have a couple of friends that are really good friends with Eric and, and they're into it and I see it and I see their passion and enthusiasm right now. It's through social media. Like they were there for the, uh, yeah. Right, whatever you call the the unveiling or whatever it was, the reopening of whatever, and I see it, and I'm like, oh man, they they've they've the Kool Aid has flowed, and I get it. So I kind of you know I'm I'm, I I understand it. I understand where their passion's coming through, and I I don't know Eric Buell. The only the only thing that I know is my time spent with Michael Sizz which was a dude trying to make a motorcycle out of America with a little less of the jingoistic. I mean, there was American flags on the bikes, but it wasn't like the American flag color scheme. But that was one thing that he was trying to get was like, hey, we're trying to do this out of America. And it did. It is inspiring, right? Was it what drew me in? No. What drew me in was working on weird motorcycle that was similar in in scope to a Briton. That that was what drew me to it. But I know a couple other people that were into it purely because it was an American sport bike or an American racing effort or something like that. So having watched that and then I'd also watching some of the, uh, the uh, back and forth of Buell and Sizz, right? Who was, who had the flame of interest, right? Cause Sizz's project was so much more in depth than anything Buell had ever even thought of. No, I'm not saying it had a whole lot more merit, but there was a lot to it. And it was was, a different level. It was, it was a different deal in a lot of ways, but I tell you what, the bike was beautiful and very interesting and very thought provoking. And uh, anyway, so that was for me, that was a, that is an interesting thing from having seen it from the inside of a company, having worked at a company during, I mean, I got the job with, Motosis in 
August of 2007. Lehman Brothers, I think, happened in uh, in September. Was it 08? Yeah, I, I I won't say for certain. Whatever it is that I was there during the time because I was there through late 08, early 09. So I I was at Moto Sis during watching what happens when it all goes horribly wrong. Watching what happens when you just it's nothing but money, right? Trying to get money. Him doing the dog and pony show to show people the bike, starting the bike up. That was a lot of my story. There was unfortunately not testing, not dyno testing, not proving the bike, but going out to do a dog and pony show, right? And unfortunately, like that, that's kind of how it has to be. And and there was something that struck me. Someone did a um a documentary for. I think it was PBS in Wisconsin, whatever their affiliate is. Um, but it went around the internet. And it was it was basically a documentary of of Eric Buell um, from the, the the it was the EBR story. But yeah. it, it, there's two things about it that struck me interesting on it. One, it didn't finish with the failure. It finished on the high note, like this is the American brand and they're doing it. Yeah, and you're yeah. like, you guys realize like that like three months later that the company shut down, right? So like already, you know, you have a slant because this is a company that's, that's circling the toilet bowl and you're being like, Hey, we win yeah, rah, rah, so right before the flush goes. Yeah. Um, so I always thought that was really interesting and very telling on the, uh, the, the slant that the, the director or the producer, whomever was, uh, was, was creating. But the, the other one too, is there was this really insightful scene where I think Eric's at, Road America or Road Atlanta. He's at one of the tracks. And he's like, oh, I just had to come out and see the race team. I should probably, I probably should be out there like raising money for these guys. They're working so hard and I'm not really holding up my, my, my end of the deal. I got to get, you know, the company's got, you know, we're kind of tied on cash and we got to get this stuff done. But oh, I just had to come out to the racetrack and see these guys. And like, you know, people are coming up and they're saying hi to them. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you, 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 sh- you should be out raising money. You shouldn't be at the racetrack. You're the CEO. The CEO's job at any startup, the number one job is to raise money. You know, that's why you have a CEO. You know, that's why you have a chief operations officer who, who deals with the minutia of getting stuff built and making sure the race team's going and then making sure you have the parts on time and stuff like that. The CEO's job is to be pitching the bitch and you're not doing it. And, and sure enough, six months later, your, your company folded up primarily because you didn't have enough money primarily because you you didn't get enough money for what your company was worth on, on its equity. And it's just like, that's a problem of your own creation. It's hard to be empathetic towards it. You're like, meh. It's hard. It's hard. And, and it's, you know, I wish it wasn't the case. But that's, I think that's a great contrast between what you were saying with, with Michael and versus what, you know, kind of we're seeing from Eric. And, um, you know, maybe he'll be better off as a, in a technical role in the new company. You know, having business people around him making business decisions and that would be the hope right maybe he'll, he has a uh, he's bottled up a bunch of other dreams and ideas that he wants to uh, to to make happen but didn't want to because he didn't want to be beholden to, to other interests you know what i'll, I'll give them the benefit of doubt and hopefully because fr- frankly he he has accomplished more as a person making motorcycles or being in the motorcycle industry than 90% of the other people out there that just fucking sit behind a, a keyboard and just talk shit. Right. Absolutely. So, okay. You got to give it that, but there's a bit of like, well, eh, I don't know to what end. Right. I don't, I, I don't, I'm not sure. So for me, the, just recently we got a Buell into the shop, uh, pre-owned and I, I was taking pictures of it and it was an 1125 R09 signature edition, blue frame, weird blue frame, black. It's this, the one that looks like it's tumor ridden. And I, I have to admit, I'm looking at like, 
I could ride this motorcycle. And it's just, it was a very strange thought for me because I'm, I'm taking pictures of it. So I'm intimately wiping down every, every part of it. I'm, I've got the, I've got the lights on it. I'm like up close with it. And I'm looking at all of the strangeness and the perimeter break and all this stuff. And I'm like, unfortunately this thing's cheap. Like I could buy this thing for pennies. Right. right? Cause you got it for the prices, right? It, and, and that was right? the same thing when, when Buell shut down and dealers were, were unloading bikes, I thought about grabbing one. I was like, well, six grand for an 1125 CR. It's interesting looking bike. It's kind of quirky. It's a street fighter. Not kind everybody of thing. has one. Not a lot of people going right. to have one. Six grand, man. If it breaks down like a year or two from now, I'm not going to feel too bad about it. I'll probably be able to find some parts anyways. Yeah. I'm not, I, would, I wasn't even too worried about yeah, that. Harley Davidson's taking care of people on warranties and stuff. So yeah, that's, that was yeah, the interesting. That I, for me, a bit of an end to this is like, you know what? There's still a little bit of a passion mainly because it's a twin. I like twins and it's big and unwieldy, but I don't know. Once it, it needs to have a fuel pump. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, but that's no, no comment on the bike itself. It's just, okay. Sometimes fuel pumps go. So, uh, once the fuel pumps in and I'm, I'm probably, I'm going to go for a rip on it. And I don't know, there might be, I doubt that I would ever put my money down on it. But the fact is that I started thinking about it and that really blew my mind. Cause I was like, wait a second, this, em- this embodies so much that I hate, but I've been so indoctrinated into the Ducati universe for so long now, 20 years of my life, really. So it, it is refreshing to be into something completely different, right? Even yeah. well, not completely different because it's a twin and it's a big sport bike, but just completely different in that it's not Italian. It's not the same old, same old stuff. Right. So just, just to, just to end on a, on another story, I saw a EBR 1190 RS. This is the 40, yeah, the special dollar super yeah. whammy. This was basically the homologation special for yep. the AMA. Carbon parts and all that stuff. Which I don't think they ever met homologation not. figures. Not for. by a long shot. Just gonna throw that out there. But I saw one new zero miles still in the crate, twenty grand on eBay. Hmm. And there was a part of me that was like, that that would be a good pickup, Jensen. It would. That would be a good one to have. Just sit on it. Because that's gonna be a little bit of history. And not not only that, like I like the story. I do like the story behind it. The good and the bad. I think there's, 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 yeah. if you're fair on the Eric Buell story, sure. I think it's, it's one, it's incredibly human. And two, I think it's incredibly, there is something patriotic about it. There is something about the American dream. Um, and this idea of like, if you try hard enough and you, if you want to succeed in doing something, you can try that. I mean, you know, I think the, the end story to, to Buell's story is that he failed, but I'll give someone so much more credit for trying something and failing than not trying something yep. at all. By a long shot. By a long shot. And sure. that's, and, and to be that, that, that's a very American thing for me. And that's something where, you know, I don't think I have any issues with, with EBR trying to be American. Cause, cause th- that is a very, like you tried and you failed. That's fine. We, f- we fail all the time. It's, it's what you do afterwards. That, yeah. That's important. But this idea of we're just going to put it on because that's what we're going to try and sell it through. That doesn't jive so much with me. But I, I saw that, that 1190 RS and I was like, hmm, that'd be an interesting one. That'd be an interesting one. One, one I think it'd be a good investment. I think that's a bike that's going to be worth something down the line. It actually might be an appreciating. Yeah, it might be uh, twenty grand. That might be an appreciating asset. The race team but, again that I I was in I was involved with or friends with the same thing. He at one point in time I walked back into the catacombs of the race shop and I saw one of the bikes that he had had and I was surprised to see it because I thought for sure he would have gotten rid of all that stuff and I was like, dude, why do you still have this thing? He's like, I'm keeping that. He's he's like, that's. 
I think it's an RS, of course, sure, right? Yeah. Or whatever the special, it, it started off. If you're talking piece, about who I think you're talking about, yeah. yeah it's piece history. And, and, and the, even with his livery on it and all that stuff, it's pretty impressive. And you know what? That doesn't cost him much to have it there. So he's just going to keep it. And I think that's really cool. So that's. And that's you know. telling. That's telling. Yeah. And that's, that's maybe why there's this story refuses to die. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's going to be the end. <laughs> I think. I think it's going to continue on for a while. <laughs> we'll see. You know, like how many how many times can you do it, right? You know, he'll. You know, he'll have either. I don't know what you say if it succeeded, but there will be success if he calls you up and says, "I want you to ride one of my motorcycles." Yeah. Right. And I. I hope that you could say, "Hey, can I bring a friend?" <laughs> <laughs> right. All right, Quentin. Uh, I think we've I think we've finally gotten to to do this show, I, and I think it was actually good. So thank God, because the other ones we we've stopped and we we're like, yeah, we just didn't cover. We should have thought about this. We should have thought about that. We didn't that. do it justice. And then we did. I think we got a little bit more cerebral than I, uh, and and I think to to a good extent about this being a being a little bit more in it more than just hating on hating on the bikes for being shitty and hating on the company for, for not doing this and not doing that, but actually recognizing that it was a, a good effort, right? Th- this show, hopefully like EBR, better the third time around. <laughs> <laughs> kickstands up. Oh, geez. <laughs> Even on this one, huh? Yeah. It, they have kickstands, those Beals. Uh, he hasn't figured that one out. They do not have kickstands. Yeah, how has he not reinvented the kickstand? Uh, <laughs> How is that like out of all the fucking things you they do? Sh- it should be on the invent a better kickstand. It should be on the right side at least, right? Oh <laughs> wow, you just saw my head explode. Boom. Oh, I totally want to see that happen. <laughs> I hope someone at EBR hears that and goes like, oh yeah, they're right. Let's just do that. Right is right. Right is right. Kickstands down. <laughs> Jesus. All right, later. I meant to show you, I got an email today or yesterday from a guy and he was like, I was so tempted to end this email with kickstands up, but I'll spare you. And I was like, oh, thanks. But you still brought it up. So So I'm still having to stew in that pot. It's like the Donald Trump. It's like, oh, I wasn't going to talk about Donald Trump today, but then like you Voldemorted it and now we're, now we're downward spiral. You know what? I don't even have a fucking idea what you meant by Voldemorted. Is that what, and what does that mean? Harry Potter. Yeah, I kind of know that it's Harry Potter, but I don't know what it means. Like, what is, who's... Oh, you can't... Is he a he, v- evil character? Yeah, he's the bad guy in Harry Potter, and, like, everyone refers to him as he who can't be named, or... Ah, that's what... Okay, so if you, you say it, you does say, he show up or something? No, it's not like Beetlejuice, but it's like, like, they're so afraid of him, like, they're worried that even saying his name could bring dire consequences. Ah, okay. So you Voldemorted Donald Trump yeah, and or kickstands well, up. To, and to get us on track... Eric Buell, I feel like, is like the motorcycle industry's version of Voldemort. <laughs> no, like, like you just can't bring up Eric Buell around certain people because it's like this downward spiral of like, oh, the the mad genius, and oh, he got screwed over so many times, and if only this time around it'll work.